everybody. Welcome to the Weekly Dish. I'm Stephanie March. I am here today with Miss Elizabeth Reese as my co-host. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's nice to be with you. Oh, good. We are, you know, it's kind of one of those days in the food world that's been a little bit... You know, it's been a it's been a rough week for a it's lot of a people. Heavy week, yeah. heavy week, and so I know a lot of people have dealt with a lot of stuff this week. Um, and of course, you know, the biggest news in the food world is that Anthony Bourdain was found dead of suicide mm-hmm. uh, yesterday, and we are going to deal with that. We're going to talk a little bit about his place in the food world and and everything else. But I assure you guys, if you're here for you know a little bit of lighter stuff, we do our second hour is full of really great fun chicken stories and salads <laughs> and all the good things. So. We're just going to give a little context. We actually have Miss Stephanie Hansen on the line this morning. Miss Hansen, are you there? Good morning. I am here. Hi, Good. Steph. Of course, you're. You know, you're out of town. You're out. I think you're in Wisconsin. Is that where you are? I am. Yes. Yeah. But oh, we wanted God. you to okay. call in because we know that you had a very special moment, or you know, with Anthony Bourdain, and I kind of wanted to make sure you got to share that. Yeah, it was a it was a moment. It's not like we're friends or anything, but. <laughs> Um, a couple, like five years ago, I guess, I had the opportunity to go to what's called the Cayman Island Cookout. And it's in Cayman Island, and it's at this fancy, like, Ritz-Carlton. And what they do is, like, 150 people come, and it's a food weekend. So Eric Repair started it because he's got a restaurant inside uh, that hotel. And he comes, and in this particular year, Daniel Hume came from New York, Anthony Bourdain was there, Chef Jose Garces was there, and it was just such a small environment to see all of these really big talents, and you went to cooking classes and tastings, and then they had um, like a barbecue one night, and then another night they had a more formal dinner, and you really got to spend time with these sort of larger-than-life chefs, and also they were with their families. So you got to see them and make it sound like they're animals in the zoo, but you really got to see them in kind of their natural setting with their friends and their family. And it was a really, really special weekend. Um, I happened to be at a talk that Anthony had given, and I think he was doing a demonstration too about La Crusade or something like that. And he always talked about like he didn't really see himself as a chef in the same league as he saw his other contemporaries. He mm-hmm. saw himself more as a cook yeah. and then someone who travelogued, I guess. So he was there and he had given this talk and we're walking back through the hotel and I'm just, I was alone because I went to see him speak and um, he was there and you know how you see like a celebrity and you want to ask for a picture, but you don't want to be that person. <laughs> I was like, Am I going to be that person? You are that moment? person. Yeah, you have to be that person. I And I normally am not, though. Like, I don't ask. So it was just me and him. We were just together. There was nobody around. So I was like, do you mind if we take a picture? So he was very nice. And he had to hold the camera because my arms were too short because he's <laughs> tall. Um, but just, you know, he had a real light about him. He had a real, like, when that light was shining on you, you felt like you were really having a moment with him. He was really able to connect with people in lots of ways. And when I think about just my food life, like I, of course, was interested in food as I was a kid, but reading that book, Kitchen Confidential, was like one of the first food memoirs I ever read. It was the first time that I actually saw being a restaurant person as like a career, as something that I could strive for, that telling the story of food was something that maybe I could do. 
it was really impactful for me. And I imagine for you too, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I have memories of reading Kif- Kitchen Confidential in a car ride back and forth with my, you know, now ex-husband, but we, you know, read it out loud to each other. Wow. And it was like, it was just kind of amazing because we were in the food industry. We were mm-hmm. in the food world and it was like, oh my God, he's saying these things. And there's, it's so perfectly said. Yeah. You know, I think for me it's, and you know, you guys obviously focus more on like the restaurant and the food thing. For me, the storytelling on television that Anthony Bourdain was able to accomplish yeah. is like the thing that dreams are made of. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Parts Unknown. Interestingly, on Thursday night, I was home by myself and my kids were sleeping. Um, my husband was gone and I just thought, oh, I'm just going to sit down and watch something. What do I want to watch? And I thought I hadn't watched Parts Unknown in a while so I turned on his episode from Armenia and I just watched it Thursday night and having not watched it in a while because I've binge watched like all of it and then usually I kind of go through and check my DVR and watch ones that I haven't seen before and so I was just hearing his voice and listening to his story um, and then I woke up on Friday morning to this terrible news and I think the way that Anthony Bourdain was able to have conversations with people um and connect us all through food was just one of the greatest gifts. It is just so sad to me that that is not going to continue, that that was just such a huge contribution to the world. And I feel like there were so many more stories for him to tell. Yeah. Yeah. And how his stories like brought how how the story of food and just the communing of eating or raising a glass, how that really brings people together through differences through things ways that you're alike like there's just nothing like getting to know someone as getting to know them through their culture through Mm -hmm. their food through breaking bread with them i feel like if we all could just like have a communal potluck the world would be such a better place it's so true though i mean and it does make you think about like all of the differences I, i just don't think there is really anything that unites us like hunger. I mean, everything revolves around hunger and preparing food and satiating food. You know, you can't bond over motherhood the same way that you can bond over food because there are gender differences. There are people without children. There are so many different experiences. Mm -hmm. There are, there are a lot of like very important, impactful experiences that we go through as humans that still, I mean, you can't bond over your relationship with your parents, like you can bond with food because people have such complex relationships and such different experiences. But when it comes to hunger, we all wake up in the morning and we're hungry and we're ready to break the fast and how we do that can be different. But that basic need and that basic emotion is always there. And that's what he was able to show. But I thought what was so beautiful about Anthony Bourdain, particularly in parts unknown is that it wasn't, overly food focused the food is the thread but the people are the story yes and that was how um he was able to really open our eyes to other cultures and and frankly for me make me look at countries that i never think about in a way that made them important and humanized unlike any other show i mean parts unknown and, and no reservations are some of the greatest television shows ever made I I completely agree, and I believe that there's something about uh, showing people in their natural habitats without sensationalizing it or fetishizing it and just 
being a part of. And there's plenty of, you know, people who have posted stories about, you know, the woman in Gaza who was like, yeah, he had to rock my seven month old kid to sleep. He was a baby whisperer, yeah. you know, while we were filming. And she's like, but it was never he was just a guest in our home. And somebody else was writing about, oh, it was Helen Rossner in the New York. Uh, New Yorker, how she was saying he, whenever he was in a home, you could see it. It was on television. He'd be in someone's home and he was just quieter and he respected that role of the guest. Yeah. And that to me is something that we don't see. We see these brash personalities, you know, barging into kitchens and places and being like, this is all and eating the food and making the faces. He was a guest in people's homes and that was a, that was a definite thing for him. We talk about the ultimate like hospitalitarian in some respects, I think he he was that because when he's in your home and he's um, doing his work, he was like he was so hospitable. Mm-hmm. He was generous. He wasn't. Um, it wasn't about him. He wasn't a camera hug. He really wanted to tell the stories of the people. Yeah, and just such a great storyteller of our day. And when I think about like my career and the things I've done, because I've done lots of different things, the one thread that's always been important to me is like to tell the story. And maybe you do that visually. Maybe you do that through your words or through their words or through writing. It can happen lots of ways. He was just such a beautiful storyteller. And you guys, the piece about mental illness that maybe will get opened up from here. Steph, I read your part about that he's he's a trailblazer. He sort of cracked open this world of food and maybe he'll crack open the the stigmatization of mental illness and of suicide. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that. We have a couple. We have Ann Spath, who's coming on uh, on the radio in a little bit. And she's going to talk a little bit about the nurse series that she's doing at the Lynn Hall. And so hopefully we'll kind of dig into a little bit of that side of life. And I want people to, to think about something. You know, like we see art and we see artists as these creative beings. And we see um, authors as, you know, this storytelling mechanism. People that are chefs, people that create food people that create an environment which you want to be in to consume that food, they are creative. And that um, fragility of their being able to bring you those gifts, sometimes that comes with a lot of things that we don't want to talk about, we don't want to recognize that they're there. In a creative culture, there is the yin and the yang. And I'm hoping that we can find ways to do better self-care, um, that we can find ways to be more open about what comes when the darkness comes in because it does yeah, yeah i think you're does. totally right stuff you are okay well thanks for calling in Steph. i know yeah. you wanted to share stuff so we wanted to make sure that you got your you got uh you know you got a voice because that's important yeah. and i want to um remind people that if they miss any of this or i will miss some of it you can always re-listen to the podcast yeah. that's what i'll be doing after the show so have a great day ladies <laughs> okay have a nice day. i'm thanks, keeping your girl. seat warm All right, we're going to take a quick break. And you guys, when we come back, we are going to continue talking about Anthony Bourdain and a little bit about his impact and uh, a little bit about what has changed in this world because of him. We'll be right back. This is The Weekly Dish. We're brought to you by Red Cow and Red Rabbit. Everybody, welcome back to The Weekly Dish. I'm Stephanie March. I'm here with Elizabeth Reese today. Good morning. And we are sort of in a moment of reflection Mm -hmm. upon the life and the gifts of Anthony Bourdain. Um, who unfortunately passed away or, you know, I'm just going to say he killed himself yesterday at the age of 61 after a long and kind of crazy career, quite honestly, and a beautiful and imperfect voice in our society for food. It's just a really shocking loss, I think, because 
Anthony Bourdain was such a storyteller. And so, you know, for a lot of celebrity chefs, we maybe can kind of like idolize them from a distance and be like, oh, how amazing would it be? Or you had like one experience eating at their very fancy, expensive restaurant. Anthony Bourdain was very different because he really was a democratizer of food and would appreciate like the fanciest French restaurant just as much as the street noodle stand in like a back alley. Hope, actually, do you want to play? Actually, we're going to play a clip from his introduction to the Waffle House. And this is exactly what you're talking about. Go ahead, Hope. It is indeed marvelous. An irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. Where everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation, is welcomed. Its warm yellow glow, a beacon of hope and salvation, inviting the hungry, the lost, the seriously hammered all across the South to come inside, a place of safety and nourishment. It never closes. It is always, always faithful, always there for you. When I was a kid, I was a... See, that's the Waffle House. <laughs> that's the Waffle Think House. Think about how many times we've thought about how the sketchy Waffle House, this, that, the next. He told the essence of the... He, he spoke to the essence of the Waffle House, mm-hmm. and he put it into context for so many people. I mean, not just the Waffle House, but everything. And I think that's what, for me, one of the gifts that he had was to take kind of the unruly and the messy and the, and, you know, and really kind of not even polish it, but just present it. Just present it. Yeah. With respect. Yeah. There was no kind of trying to make you feel a certain way about something. It was just to open your eyes to what he saw was there. Yeah. I mean, it's really like a great observer. Well, and because he came from, in my mind, the grit and the grime, he had that perspective. And if, you know, I posted on the Weekly Dish show page or on the Facebook page, I did post the New Yorker article, which was the beginning. It was the beginning, you guys. It was 1999. And he wrote this thing, Don't Eat Before You Read This, is yeah. the title of it. <laughs> because he talks about all the gross things that happen in the kitchen, about how you don't order fish on Mondays. I know that I've lived by. You have. And that's because of him. You know what I mean? And like things like, you know, the fact that everybody's probably pretty stoned back there. And, you know, they're all those things that are basically parts of how you the, the chef special is where you dump your leftover food like all that stuff is the true grit and grime in the restaurant industry and he put it out there he cracked it open and I think that that was like the beginning of understanding this chefs did not used to be in the kitchen yeah right? or, I mean in the dining room in the dining room they were in the kitchen mm-hmm. they didn't come out they didn't talk they weren't on TV and he kind of said you know we could do this like it's okay we can do this we have that voice and he put the words and the storytelling to that from their perspective. You know, I loved um, Anthony Bourdain was a huge film fan and particularly a foreign film fan. And so I was reading once about kind of how they put together parts unknown, his show on, on CNN. And, um, and there were conversations apparently between him and the producers where he would kind of find a film that really inspired him. And then that film, he would have the producers watch. And then that would sort of be like the inspiration and the jumping off point for how they would tell the story, Yeah, which I thought was so cool. That's why when you watch parts unknown, there are just sort of, it's, um, what's fun about it is that like the beginning tends to be very, very dramatic. Yes. And it's sort of like this film, um, fantasy kind of, okay, what you might think is going on. And then the rest of the program <laughs> the of sort of gets into like 
the the mundane and the everyday and the just sort of way of life, but it brings you in with that beginning of drama. So there's like a little bit of show to it and then something that we could all find community in, which I thought was just such a beautiful way to tell stories. It is. It is. And I, again, like we were saying before, the way that he humanized different parts of the world. I had a friend last night who said on his Facebook, he was talking about how he was like, I never would have thought that I'm going to go to, you know, Istanbul. He's like, but I'm going. Yeah. He's like, I'm going because of parts unknown and yeah. because I saw people there that I, he's like, they, they like, I never would have put that on my travel path. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, and that idea, that quote that's floating around, you know, by, uh, Tony's saying, if there's one thing I hope to inspire people is to get out there and move and go and yeah. leave. And I think a lot of people are taking that, you know, sort of advice to heart and they're getting out and they're seeing places they may never have seen. Well, and then we got to see places that we probably will never no, get we to will see. Never I mean, see Anthony Bourdain, I, I will never forget the episode on Myanmar um, oh, that yeah. he did that was just so incredible and it has stuck with me ever since. And the closest that I've ever gotten or will get is to eat at Burma Superstar right? in I San Francisco, we about this on which this was like yeah. a life, life-changing food for me and just another reminder. I mean, and this is what Anthony Bourdain talked about is I was reading some more quotes from him in terms of just his perspective on storytelling and he said the more that I traveled and this is what anybody finds I think when you travel the more that you travel the more you realize how much more there is to see yes. it doesn't mean that when you're traveling you're not crossing things off and feeling like okay great I'm getting to the end uh-huh. it's it widens the world for you and makes you feel even more like you have more to see mm-hmm. and so that was what was so incredible about his way of storytelling and again like i mean i will never get into myanmar it just will not happen in my lifetime right and so being able to see it through his eyes and then um being able to seek out the places where you can experience as close to it as you can here which is to eat the food right and when it comes to like burmese food there are very very few places you can even get burmese food in the united states so it's just so that kind of... Um, I think locally Friendship Cafe. Yeah. Is it? Is it? I mean, it, I think in New York, there's like two restaurants. There's two, yeah. Two in the entire city, which is unbelievable. Right. So those are the kinds of places that he really opened our eyes to. And then also, you know, showing us the politics and the strife. Well, and that's I be, uh, that's the beginning of the discussion, right? Yeah. The beginning is to you invite someone into your house and then you sort of feed them and you sort of welcome them. And I feel he did... He did that with, and while also being subversive, yeah. while also showing you the things that need to be shown, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that that is a soft way of really opening eyes. And I love the fact that so last or on Thursday night I had a, you know the the end of school year clutch of fifteen year old boys in my house, and it was like <laughs> they were of course where were they? They were all in my kitchen, of course, because they're eating something. They're always there, and they're always in the kitchen. They were opening bottles of. Things that they had fermented last year at the last oh, day of school. I love these kids. That they had like buried and kept in Ziploc bags. Like they are experimental, but they're, it's also you, a food thing. Uh-huh. And then we got into the hot sauce cabinet and they were like digging the hot sauce. And not only were they just tasting it and being, and they weren't like dude broing out where they were like, dude, put this on your finger. You know, it was. It wasn't jackass style. It wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> it was like, they were like literally, it was like, well, I find this one to be a little bit sharper in tone than the others. <laughs> I'm used to a ghost pepper sauce, but I was watching them and laughing in my mind. And then that next morning when I heard it immediately came to me that this was like none of this would have happened because Mm -hmm. of allowing us to see food differently than just like, you know, quick and easy, you know, and and really digging into that kind of stuff. I think the thing, too, that is so um, 
difficult is that Anthony Bourdain, I mean, it's, it was no secret that he struggled. I mean, it was no secret that he struggled with mental Mm -hmm. health and, um, and with addiction and with kind of trying to figure out his place in the world and maybe with the attention and then liking the attention, but not necessarily being able to thrive with it. And I, and it's just so sad. I mean, it's just so sad that you think, um, that that was those moments at the end of his life. I just, it just breaks my heart. Yeah. And it's, there's, you know, there's something about, um, the fact of, you know, I wrote this piece yesterday about, uh, the misfit in the darkness. And I think that there's something also in the food world, again, with the bad boy thing and the idea that you, that it's a counterculture place, which of course is the reason that a lot of us go to it, but it's the, also the idea that then you kind of have to be damaged in order to be this misfit. And I don't, I don't brook with that. I think you can be a healthy misfit. Mm -hmm. And I think that you can, I think being a misfit means that you have a different perspective and that you don't have to conform to society, but you also don't have to be so far outside of it that you can't find any help. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. And I think that that was one of those things where it's kind of like when you become this iconoclast, I worry about him in that way that like you become these iconoclasts and then you, you think, well, I'm supposed to be sort of artistically dark and that's okay, but then there's that part, which is, you know, Andrew Zimmern spoke to Eater National about it, and he was saying that he's like, I just, nobody really knew that struggle. Mm-hmm. Like, we all knew that he'd battled heroin and addictions and all sorts of stuff, but you don't know that inner struggle. It wasn't evident. And I think the bottom line here for me is when you look at people like him and, you know, and Kate Spade, and you look at um, just this, just this broken, um, you know, this broken spirit that leads to a moment of there's no hope. Yeah. And both of them are leaving behind children. Yeah. And these children who it just, you know, I'm a mother and I just can't imagine leaving. I know. I know. And all I can tell you, I know it's so hard. And all I can tell you is that because I've dealt with depression in my family and I've dealt with someone I loved looking at me saying, I don't really want to be here anymore. Yeah. I can tell you that it's because also they feel they're sparing you their pain. I know. And they feel that, that it is a thing that they have to take away from you because it is so horrific that if they remove it, then, then it will gone. actually be it's better gone. for you. And you yeah. are in a better place. And this and is, that is the great lie. And that is the lie. It is the, it the, is great the lie. biggest lie because it will never be the same. Um, and thank you for that. And we're going to continue to talk a little bit about this dark side because I feel like this is a thing that I want to make sure that we don't miss. And because it is important to talk about this as much as it is important to talk about his gifts. So we're going to take a quick break, you guys. And when we come back, we're going to have Anne Spaeth from the Lynn Hall to talk about the Nourish series that she is doing in the Twin Cities. We'll be right back. This is the Weekly Dish, remembering Anthony Bourdain. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Weekly Dish. I'm Stephanie March. I'm here with Elizabeth Reese this morning. Hello. And we are in the process of remembering uh, Anthony Bourdain, obviously a tyrant and not a tyrant, a a titan, maybe a tyrant, too. No, (laughs) he was a titan in the food industry and he was, um, you know, just a, a remarkable human. But the sad truth is, is that he took his own life yesterday Mm -hmm. at the age of 61. And it is sort of rattled millions of people because they it's hard to understand. Before the break, uh, Elizabeth was saying that there's, you know, someone so successful and so, you know, well regarded and important is it's hard when that happens and we don't understand. I know. I think those things combined with someone who is a parent. I mean, I think that those. Um, those roles are just so important and it is so difficult to imagine 
getting to a place where um, you're so dark that you feel the only option is to leave it all behind. Yeah. And I will tell you that, you know, coming from the restaurant industry, the thing that I've been saying to everybody is that it is an easy place to find other medications. Yeah. Instead of solving your problems or seeking help, it's easy to find a bottle or a line of cocaine Mm -hmm. or just a way to, to, to kind of avoid it. And that's one of the pitfalls of the industry. And that's why we have Ann Spath on the line. Ann, are you there? I am. Good morning. Thank you for being here. We, Ann Spath is the owner of the Lynn Hall and she's a good friend of mine who, uh, you know, kind of, we got into some discussions one day over a glass of wine and it was sort of like realizing to the depth with which the kitchen industry is sort of hurting. Yeah. And when we see something like this, it was so apparent and Lynn has, or Anne has actually really done something very cool with the nourish series. You want to talk a little bit about that, Anne? Yes. Well, and again, maybe a little bit of background before we get there. I mean, my background is in the criminal system. I prosecuted child abuse and neglect cases years ago. And over the last nine years, I had of opening the Lynn Hall really have been entrenched in the child welfare system, but through that journey have really learned so much more about children's mental health and now see ending up in the restaurant industry, how there's so many parallels because it all comes down, in my opinion, to trauma and adverse childhood experiences. And what I'm seeing as a restaurateur and an owner just over the last year is that we really are at ground zero of so much of this epidemic. As you said, Stephanie, these are people that come from often backgrounds where they have struggled and then they're looking for a sense of community and they find that community in an industry that has little to no barrier to entry. Yeah. And then they're surrounded by other folks that are struggling and it's just sort of this groundswell of um, of folks that are, are surrounded and, and as you said, have easy access. So we at the Lynn Hall really saw this and not just saw it within our own staff, but heard it from other restaurateurs and chefs saying, What's going on? We see people struggling. I've just lost, you know, Ann Kim, who's become a dear friend, mm-hmm. has talked about her own folks that have, have had to leave for a time and enter treatment. And people need answers because they really feel helpless. And having such a high-profile person in the restaurant industry and in the entertainment industry take his own life, I think, yet again reminds us of it doesn't matter the amount of money and no. prestige you have. Mm-hmm. At the core, there are so many people that feel disconnected and in pain. And so we at the Lynn Hall decided in honor of May Mental Health to launch the Nourish Series as a way to bring the community together around food and conversation to really to kick off this discussion to say, not just in the restaurant industry, but in our community, there are people that are struggling. So with our first um, speaker, we had Dr. Planikoff come in and he really spoke about metabolic health and how it doesn't just matter you know, what what food you're eating, but you could have metabolic imbalance and that causes severe anxiety and depression. So we need to look at supplements, you know, and and then went further into that discussion with an industry-specific event led by Dr. Amelia Frank-Meyer and Suzanne Keplinger all around trauma, trauma 101, and recognizing in the restaurant industry these are what these behaviors present like, and this is what we can do as an industry to heal and, you know, led that uh, further into our dinners that we had with Nalini and Raghavan, where we talked about Ayurvedic kitchen and how foods can heal and really learned more about the history of the Ayurvedic in oh, Eastern medicine. That and was then, wonderful. And capped it off. And it was so wonderful to have you there, Stephanie, and then oh. capped it off 
with your colleague um, Dara and the sous chef talking about indigenous foods and the healing properties. Well, and this is um, this is Elizabeth Reese, and I'm a huge fan of the Lynn Hall. I just it's <laughs> like my you. destination. I love uh, going there. And I love the sense of community that you feel when you go in there. And I think that's what's so interesting about this series is understanding that you're talking about trying to heal people that are within your industry who are working with food and you're using food to do that. I mean, so many times we're sort of overlooking the importance of so many incredible foods when it comes to boosting our mental health and supporting supporting our mental health. Well, and I think at the core, too, you know, Elizabeth, my mentor in this work, who sadly took his own life in 2016, he was the first one who really helped me understand the power of human relationship. Mm-hmm. And Stephanie and I talked about this in depth over that glass of wine, yeah. saying that at the core, you know, we as humans, whether you're a, an infant and need that, that connection to your your caregiver, but just the real power of connection to other humans. and. I have so many people approach me at the Lynn Hall on a daily and a weekly basis that talk about that connection that they feel that they come in. Our long tables, our programming, all of this is very intentional about bringing people together and having that human connection that so many people tell me they feel is lacking in the world today. Well, and there was, I will tell you that, you know, in my article, I was writing about something that has struck me since I heard the news was, you know, in 2010, you know, we had a chef named John Radel who was at the Grand Cafe Mm -hmm. and he, he died. He, he killed himself, but it was never spoken of. And it was, it was just that he quote unquote unexpectedly died. That's what they wrote in the papers. That's what they all said on TV or, you know, any of the broadcasts. That's what it was. I couldn't find anywhere where it was written that it said that he had taken Taken his his own own life. life, And I remember being a writer at the time and thinking like, why can't we, why aren't we saying it? Like, I didn't understand why we weren't saying it because it felt to me like we were pretending it didn't happen. And I thought that was so dangerous. There was this time, I think, when there was this idea of protecting people. I mean, I remember as a young journalist working in television, and we didn't report on suicides. Yeah. I mean, that was just what we did. There was there were station policies at the early stations that I worked at that we didn't report on suicides. And I think the idea, and that still pervades when it comes to suicides of the everyday person yes. compared to the very well-known famous person. Right. And I think the intention is good because the intention is, well, if we talk about this, then it will encourage other people to do it. Right. Then other people will hear how this person took their own life. And then they will, if they're teetering on the edge, they will think, that they should that do they it. Should do it but too. and 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 I don't know your perspective on this, but from my perspective, I think anytime we're saying we shouldn't talk about this, it's just the greatest mistake that we can make because all you're doing is just keeping everyone who is feeling that sense of hopelessness feeling like they're the only ones. Cutting off them from the community, which is what we were just talking about. Well, and I think a piece of this, too, I mean, in my journey over the last several years, and I do feel, and I just, I read Stephanie's article, as she knows, I'm on the road, and I, I kicked it up this morning, I read it early, and I just thought, bravo, thank you, because to me, that is the big first step, is acknowledging it and recognizing it in a way that that so many people have felt uncomfortable. Yeah. But when you, in my opinion, and this is what I thought was so powerful with Dr. Amelia Frank Meyer's talk on trauma in our industry and, and in the, across the country right now is that this is what's more prevalent is how many people that are out there struggling, not the opposite. Right. I think 
you know, getting to the point where we recognize that, no, this is the norm, not that everybody's leading this perfect life and we should all just keep plowing forward. It's getting out from underneath the secrecy. And I think I feel that we are at the start of a real shift. Yes. You know, with what Minnesota Public Radio is doing to get behind their Call to Mind initiative, Stephanie, you taking up the torch. I think this is where this groundswell in a community movement that says enough, we have lost too many people, and it is time to start talking about this in an open way and recognizing that this is norm, not the opposite. Yeah. And that it's okay. Not only is it okay, but it's you can still own yourself, your, your personhood. You can still be who you are, and still, and especially with creative people, they tend to worry that they're going to lose if they get help or if they, you know, go into therapies or whatever. That they're mm-hmm. going to lose their creative self. And I think that that's we got to stop with that idea too. Yeah, and you I can think, be a healthy misfit. And the idea that too that mental illness always is something separate. And you know, I, I mean, I'd like to see the next evolution is we don't necessarily differentiate between illness and mental illness it is simply illness Illness. what are you you know and and the expectation that through life you are going to face illness that's an understanding and that is life and that you treat that illness however you need to treat the illness regardless of if it has to do with your brain or it has to do with your body or you have strep throat or Mm -hmm. you have um, a bout of anxiety or depression and however long that lasts I mean Illness is something that we face as humans, and I think we ostracize people by consistently saying, well, mental illness. Right, ugh. like, oh, you can just choose it differently. Right. Thank well, you. And this is what, but I think, you know, you brought up an interesting point. As part of this is that we want to be respectful when someone dies, and it really comes to the family to take the lead on that mm-hmm. and speak. And I think that's where we are very cautious about talking about suicide until we wait for the family to take the lead. And I loved that when I went to my mentor's funeral, the first thing his pastor said was he had a disease that he struggled with, just like cancer. And just like cancer can sometimes be fatal, so can this disease. And I think until we start, and, and this is like a larger, right? It's not just the restaurant industry. I mean, it's it's really the insurance industry. It's the medical community coming out and saying, I just read a, a report by the World Health Organization about this is an epidemic, and it's not just the Twin Cities. No. This is worldwide. And you look at the savings that, that the, I shouldn't say the savings, the loss of um, not just when people commit suicide, but just not being able to show up for work yeah. because yeah. they are incapacitated. And in, in how if employers can get behind this, and I see this more and more where employers are talking about providing leave, just like the Lynn Hall is. When we have an employee that comes to us and says, I'm at risk for relapse, we say, take care of yourself. Yeah. We're going to be here when you come back. Yeah. That's the kind of work that we need to do consistently across the board, regardless of industry. Anne, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Anne. Uh, you are such a shining li- guiding light for us, and I am. You and I are going to do great things in this. I just know it. Uh, <laughs> We're so going to go dear. forward. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, ladies. Thanks Have so a much. Thank day. you. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody! Welcome back to the Weekly Dish. I'm Stephanie March. I'm here with Elizabeth Reese this morning. Good we've, morning. Oh, it's been a heavy day, and it's been a heavy week, and we've been talking a lot about. Uh, Anthony Bourdain and just mental health. I will tell you that is the Ask Stephanie portion of the show. So I want you guys to call in and let us know how you're feeling about things. Let us, if you want to talk about, you know, Anthony and what it meant to you. Um, 651-641-1071 is the number. 
Also letting you know that on our Facebook page, we did put out a question this morning because I thought about the fact that we lost a kitchen hero yesterday and I would like to celebrate the ones that we do love. Yes. So we wanted to know, we asked the question, who led you, famous or not famous, into this luscious food world we all love? Elizabeth, who led you into this You know, Ina Garten world? was a big one for me because she was probably the first one that I started. That is the first reply on here really? too was Barefoot Contessa. She was the first one that I really fell in love with on television and I think, you know, for me... Um, um, I work in television on Twin Cities Live and live television in particular has been my great love since I was like 12 years old. Yeah. I remember just thinking, oh, I just love live TV. And um, so being able to merge television and food is such a joy. Yeah. And I just loved how um, what I love about Ina Garten's perspective and sometimes she can get a little fancy pants, but generally it's just, I love how she always says, use really good mayonnaise. Yeah. <laughs> use really good olive oil. Use really good cheese. Because good it fat. did just sort of, you know, help me to have a better understanding, you know, when you grow up in a world of like Campbell's soup and boxed mac and cheese and hungry man dinners, Amen. that there is a difference when it comes to ingredients. And mm-hmm. so that probably shaped me more than anyone else yeah. Um, as far as television. And then when it comes to cookbooks, um, Molly Katzen is a huge influence on me the and Moosewood? was the Moosewood cookbook. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I was vegetarian for four years when I was really <laughs> broke. <laughs> the girl who I think of as like the whole half pig thing. Oh, you I know? have, I have a quarter of a cow and a, yeah. or a, and a half a hog in my freezer. So, but now, but I was vegetarian and Molly Katzen's cookbook, the original Moosewood cookbook was a gift to me. And, um, it really, what that did was it gave me confidence in cooking. Yeah. And I was very young. I was like 21, 22 when I got that book. And it gave me the confidence when I started with her little handwritten recipes. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the cookbook is handwritten. Yeah. And it's all vegetarian. And there are lots of options. That's what I loved it. It would say optional, add this, optional, add this. And so I felt sort of empowered to say, wait a second, if I can get this, then I can use this as a building block to make something great. Yeah. And then I started having success in the kitchen at home. And that's what made me just fall in love with the process of creating food. Yes. So oh my God. Those two, That's those pretty two great. are the biggest to me. That's um, pretty great. Yeah, that was I fun. How it. about you? Um, you know, I would say that my journey really, it's, I can't even. Who's your food hero? I would have said that Bourdain was my food hero. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, because that like I said, me. like honestly, the writing, because of the way that he's not just a food person, but also a story. We've been saying all day, storytelling mm-hmm. and the writing and the way that he took words. And like that to me is something that I. I strive for because I don't, I'm not a person who will tell you, you know, I don't write the flowery stuff about the food. I don't no. get into these, like the cloud, it's like a cloud of puff in your mouth and it'll take you to a place where you dream of angels. And I do want to go to that place. I know. Yeah. And I, I love that stuff and that's necessary. And I, and I dig into it and I read it voraciously, but it's not me. And so finding my own voice and being authentic in that is something that has been. So for me, food has always been about, you know, the sharing and the discussion of it as well. Yeah, but you're such a champion of the line. I mean, you're such a champion of the line cook yes. and the line process I, guys, and I the back of the kitchen. And so I think that is so not surprising to me that you authentically would have Anthony Bourdain as your food hero because of his perspective on um, the line cook and the the good, the bad, and the ugly the about good, it. The bad and the ugly, you guys. I think restaurants are the life of a restaurant, the microcosm of the restaurant. I don't still think it's been fully discussed. I don't think it's been celebrated the ways that I wish and hope someday it will be because 
it is it is a just a black beautiful space in the universe. Some of my best stories in life come from my waitressing days. Everybody tells me this, particularly though. at Perkins in Apple Valley. This Let is, me tell you, I'm not Steph. kidding. Alex Kendall on TV yeah. the other one Friday when she and I were talking, she was like basically. Uh, and we had these moments where we were sharing some stories. I'm like, everybody who has been in the industry mm-hmm. does this with me. Yeah. And I love that. We're going to go to the phones. We do have Cindy on the line. Hey, Cindy, how are you doing today? Good. Good. What can we do for you? What's your comment? Okay. My comment is, is that 20 years ago, I had started experiencing depression and anxiety. And um, I worked at Cargill at the time. And I know how hard it was. They gave me like a week off to get my you know, eggs in a basket and yeah. get situated. Um, but when I came back, I said, you know what? I don't want anyone to experience what I did. Um, the, the loneliness, you know, the not, no one talked about it 20 years ago. No. Right. Um, I said, I wanted to start a group, a weekly group at Cargill with a counselor. And they said, okay. Now we only had like one to five people. That was not a time when you really said that you had it, but you know, if one person was helped, that was, they're not lonely. That's what was my, my goal. Yes. But also, um, in 20 years ago, no one really talked about it. I went to my church and I got up in front of everybody and I had, you know, said my experience. I just, I had everything. I had kids. I had a family. I wasn't rich, but I was a Christian woman that had everything. And I thought, why me? Mm-hmm. Um, Cindy, I'm sorry, we're going to have to wrap it up. But if you want to hold on, we'll continue your story when we come back.